The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Michael Easton. He's the president of the Fellowship Financial Group based in Altamonte Springs, Florida. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Great to be here. Let's just start with your background a little bit. You've been in the financial services business for a long time, so give us uh, what you've been through and, and why you formed your specific company. Sure. I'm a, I'm a CPA by background, so I've been in financial services for over 25 years. Uh, one of the, you know, I've got a passion where I am right now for forming my existing company because there's a need for people who are you know, primarily baby boomers and business owners to generate reasonable amounts of income in retirement. And most of what we do is outside of the traditional common stock and mutual fund market. And uh, that's the, the area that we serve. So we also have a tax practice as a part of our financial planning business. And we're a registered investment, and company, um, in registered investment advisory practice, an independent firm uh, here in the state of Florida. So basically, it sounds like the main thing you're serving are people who want current income. And today, the big crisis is you get nothing with CDs, money market funds, treasury bills. Basically, keeping your money short, you're going to earn pretty much no return these days. Yeah. So tell me a little bit it. about the mindset of your customers who are in that circumstance where they've got pretty much no return with very low, yield, low uh, risk. Uh, and, and what do they have to go through in order to be able to take some higher risk to get some decent yields? Well, a lot of times they just have to, it's about education. I mean, what I've found is that the, the clients that I'm working with are people who have been through a couple of roller coaster rides in the stock market and they're tired of it. They don't want the, um, they don't want the headaches that, uh, and the sleepless nights that go along with crossing your fingers and toes and hoping the market's going to keep going up. So trying to educate people is something that we do quite a bit, whether it's through um, classes that we teach on Social Security, uh, income strategies, uh, required minimum distributions. Once people understand that there are alternatives to the stock market that can allow them to sleep more comfortably at night and still generate a reasonable amount of income, it eases their mind a, a bit and, uh, and helps them to take that step away from, you know, 0.2% CDs to something that can generate 4 to 7% or so. So let's start with, you mentioned Social Security. Uh, People can start taking at age 62, but the longer the wait, the better it's going to be. Uh, yeah. What kind of mistakes do you find people make in, in when they take Social Security, and what is the ideal time to take Social Security? Well, the ideal time is going to be individual-specific, so there's no perfect formula. My, my recommendation is that if you can wait until full retirement age, which for most baby boomers today is 66, um, to wait. Uh, if you can wait even longer, it's even better because you have – you have an 8% credit that's added to the Social Security balance each year between age 66 and 67. The biggest mistake that I see people doing is, um, is they just blindly turn 62 and boom, they go down to the Social Security Administration and they fill out the paperwork and start collecting the check 
without realizing what the ramifications are or the potential ramifications, because it can be very costly if you do it blindly. How, how costly is it to take it out at 62, say, versus the opposite, take it out at 70? For the average person, how much are they leaving on the table there? Well, well it, it's not unusual for me to see 100 to $150,000 or even more over the lifetime of that, uh, that individual. So if they can wait, think about it. At 62, you're taking a 25% haircut off of the Social Security amount that you would get at full retirement age. So if you, if you look at that difference, then if you're able to do it, then I, I recommend doing it. One of the things that we do and we specialize in helping our clients is to evaluate the, you know, the other sources of, uh, of investments that clients do have. So we can help them make an educated decision about when is the actual best time for you to take Social Security or start drawing on Social Security. As I mentioned a minute ago, Jordan, it is different for every person. Do you have a, uh, any long-term worries about the uh, solvency of Social Security or is this something people shouldn't worry about? I think baby boomers right now are okay. Uh, I do think that, I mean, clearly there's an issue or the Social Security Administration wouldn't publish the fact that there's an insolvency concern that's going to take place in the year 2033. But so people need to be aware of it. But baby boomers, for the most part, I think they're okay. It's um, you know my generation and younger that uh, that have to be concerned. Now there are certain ways that uh, the Social Security Administration is trying to deal with that, um, and it involves making changes to the system. I mean, it could it could mean pushing back full retirement age uh, till later than 66, which we've already done. Um, it's going to 67 real soon. Um, if you they could lower the, the dollar amount of Social Security, uh, raise the, the maximum income limits for uh, taxation on Social Security. So there are a variety of things, that, of policies that could be put in place that could extend that, um, that solvency uh, into uh, you know, a much more favorable place. Now, another area you like to speak about is the bond market. We've had a, pretty much a 30-year bull market in bonds. We've got very low rates now. They've been actually falling lately because of uh, all the concerns about what's going on overseas. Uh, yeah. Is this a good place to be investing in long treasuries uh, at today's rates and prices? Well, maybe not so much long treasuries, but, I mean, individual bonds are still, can still be a good investment if your intention is to purchase that bond and hold it to maturity. I mean, when we look at bonds, Jordan, we look at coupon yield, and coupon yield is is kind of describes the difference between someone who is a performance-based investor versus someone who is a purpose-based investor. And let me explain what I mean by that. If somebody's performance-based, what happens is they end up chasing yields. And most financial advisors and, and brokers that are out there, they want to do well for their customers. So they're, they're constantly trying to um, you know, make their customers happy by providing yield. And what happens is they end up letting not only themselves down, but their clients down because they're constantly chasing after yield, which means that they're, looking, they're, they're actually taking more risks than they need to. But when you look at a different question and you say to the client, hey, how much income, let's figure out how much income you need in order to make your assets last for a reasonable period of time. And in, this, in today's environment, 30 years in retirement is not an unreasonable period of time. Believe it or not, a lot of times we'll see that people don't need to take more than 4 or 5% out of their investments 
in order to survive and live comfortably in retirement. So in other words, they don't have to take as much risk. So that's a purpose-based strategy rather than a a performance-based strategy. With that in mind, uh, we have, again, bond yields at very low levels, almost the lowest we've ever seen, and bond prices at the highest I've ever been. Is there a good amount of risk in long-term bonds, or do you think they're pretty safe right now? Well, I I think that... um, you know, long-term bonds, if you're going to buy and you're going to hold it to maturity because the coupon yield satisfies your purpose, I think they can do fine because you have to remember there are two key characteristics that go along with um, individual bonds if you're planning to hold it to maturity. You've got the guarantee of the interest rate, and if you hold it to maturity, you're guaranteed to get your principal back. Now, that presumes that there's no default by the, um, the issuer of that bond. So if it's generating enough income, then I'm not as concerned about the rise of, um, of the interest rates, the long-term interest rates. Now, personally, I don't think that um, interest rates, that long-term rates are going to rise substantially anytime soon. I think that um, I think we have more of an issue with some short-term rates, but, uh, but I think that, uh, that long-term rates are going to be fairly low for a foreseeable period of time. So I'm not overly concerned about that, no. So what is your expectation of how the markets are going to react when the Federal Reserve stops quantitative easing in about a month or so? Well, to me, I, think that, I think that a good portion of the reaction has been priced in. Uh, I think in the last year we started to see some of that <clears throat> since last May when uh, Ben Bernanke started even hinting, just kind of throwing that, um, that weather balloon out there, that trial balloon, to see what the reaction in the market was going to be uh, if they were to start pulling back on QE. Um, I, I do believe that, uh, that the Fed has been kind of pumping, pumping the stimulus into the market, and that's been, the, for lack of a better description, that's been the caffeine that's held the markets up so high, because when you look at a number of other factors in the economy, uh, there's not a real strong justification for the market being as high as it is. So my biggest concern is that when the Fed does completely stop, that we are going to see some wobbly knees, if you will, in the market, even more than they have been just the last, um, just the last couple of weeks. So it's a, it's a very concerning position. But how would that uh, show itself? Just short-term rates rising or long-term rates rising? Well, I think, I think long-term rates would start to eke up just a little bit. Um, but I also think that, um, that I, I think short-term rates are going to be a while before we start to see them go up. I think the, the Federal Reserve is not going to, uh, if you listen to some of what Janet Yellen has been saying lately, uh, I don't think she's going to be taking her foot off the gas um, of, of the easing monetary policy for quite some time. I mean, the, I guess the word on the street has been kind of second quarter of 2015, but Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see it till late 2015 or early 2016 before they started to raise the Fed funds rate. Are you concerned at all about potential inflation? I mean, some people would say the Federal Reserve has added $4 trillion or so to its balance sheet the last five years, and that amount of monetary uh, supply is eventually going right. to cause inflation. Are you concerned about that? Not overly concerned. I do think inflation is going to be an issue, so that's something that we always have to keep our eye on. But I think it's going to be moderate. I don't think we're going to have any hyperinflation. I'm not overly concerned about a hyperinflation situation. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, I think inflation is something that we always have to keep our eyes on. Um, but, 
you know, in the short term, certainly, and over the next few years, I don't, I don't see it as a major issue. Very good. Uh, before we go to break, just tell people a little bit about the website where they can find out more about you and what kind of services you offer. Sure. Uh, our website is fellowshipia.com. Again, that's fellowshipia.com. And, um, you know, the, the, the benefit of our organization is we do have, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a CPA. We've got tax advice that we can give you. We also provide money management services on a fee basis uh, for folks who are, who are trying to develop a plan and a strategy for retirement. And do you have a minimum investment? Typically, a hundred thousand is uh, is a good way that we can allocate, but uh, we haven't banked ourselves like many other types of um, investment companies um, to you know half a million dollars or something like that. We tep- we typically have a passion for helping um, smaller investors as well. And do you do uh, uh, individual stocks or ETFs or manage money? What, what how do you uh, handle people's money when you manage it? Yeah, we'll do um, we'll do a whole program where we talk to them about the different investments that are out there. So we'll do individual stocks. We typically uh, have a smaller portion if there's a client that wants to be in the market per se, uh, but it's usually a smaller portion that'll be in mutual funds uh, or things like that. But individual bonds, for example, or individual preferred stocks, or as I mentioned earlier, um, business development companies are something that's a, a real interesting type of a of an investment vehicle as well. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Michael Easton. He's the president of the Fellowship Financial Group based in Altamonte Springs, Florida. His website is fellowshipi.ia.com. And we'll be back after this with some ideas on how to invest for some safe high yields. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Michael Easton. He's the president of Fellowship Financial Group 
And the website to find out more of him is fellowshipia.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Great to be back. So we want to go through some of the areas you specialize in that help people get higher yields with relative safety. Let's start with one, which is exchange-traded debt securities. Explain what those are and maybe give us an example or two that you would like. Yeah, an exchange-traded debt security, it functions somewhat like a, um, like a preferred stock. Um, and it's kind of a hybrid between a preferred stock and, uh, and a debt instrument. It truly is, if you look at the prospectus, it is a debt instrument. But uh, the nice thing about that is it's, um, it's, it is treated as if it was a, a debt and if it was a bond so that you have security about the, the payment of the dividend. And those, in, on an investment-grade level, they're going to provide you with, you know, de- decent dividends in the, in the range of, you know, anywhere from 45 to 7.5% in today's environment. Uh, and, and again, the, the nice thing is that when, it, when you look at the, the spectrum of priorities for a company that does have a solvency issue, then you certainly want to understand what the pecking order is. If, if a company liquidates, who gets paid first, who gets paid next, who gets paid last? Um, and, and you have individual bondholders that get paid first. These exchange-traded debts would be right in there, like the bottom rung of the bonds. Then you would have preferred shareholders. And then at the bottom, if there's any money left, those who own common shares. So you have a little bit more seniority in the pecking order. Plus, you have a dividend rate that's typically paid out quarterly. It can be monthly in some circumstances, but it provides you a higher level of security. Now, keep in mind, with any of these types of of, uh, investments, you're not investing at, say, $25 a share with the hope that it's going to go to 50 It's not a capital gain-based investment. You're investing in it because you want to get the dividend. You're looking for income, or if you don't need the income right away, you can accumulate it and you can reinvest it. So, what would be some examples of two or three companies people might recognize that issue exchange-traded well, debt securities? Yeah, great question. Uh, American Financial Group, which is uh, an insurance organization, they're a very solid company. Um, BAA by Moody's. Um, so that's a, a good one. There's another one that's, um, let's see, Quest, for example. Quest is in the telecommunications industry, one of the largest uh, telecom companies in the United States. They've got several uh, exchange-traded debts that are out there in the 6 to 7% range. Uh, American Financial, as I mentioned, is, is a little bit higher rated. So they're probably five and three quarters. Um, so those are a couple of really strong okay. ones. Good. Let's go to another area, which is BDCs, which are called business development companies. Maybe yeah. explain briefly how those work and one or two examples that you would like there. Sure. A BDC is kind of an interesting, um, an interesting animal. They, they're, they're basically lenders to middle market companies. In other words, companies that are, that are not public, they loan money to, to these companies. But a, a business development company was a, an organization that was, the structure was designed by Congress in the 80s to fill a specific need. And that need is in between smaller companies that can go to a bank to get financing and much larger companies that can go to Wall Street and, gener- and, and get financing. So these companies are designed as pass-through entities, kind of like real estate investment trusts. So they have some good tax um, benefits in that the corporation itself is not a taxable entity. They're required by law in order to maintain their structural benefit, their tax benefit, 
to pass through 90% of the income to the investors. So what that, what that basically means is they're not holding on to retained earnings each year. They're passing that through to investors in the form of higher dividends. Um, some of these companies are investment grade. Some of them are not investment grade. So you have to understand the characteristics and the differences there. Some of them have higher um, amounts of investments in direct loans. Some of them invest more in equity. So you have to understand how that dynamic affects it as well. But one of the nice things that, uh, that I like truly about this type of an investment is that if you're looking at the right ones, then, some, then they have a, a much higher percentage of their investable dollars in senior secured debts. That means that, they're, that there's collateral behind the debt. So that puts them in a very high ranking if the company was to have a liquidation. And, and the reason I bring that up again is because one of the things that we always look at from a conservative investment standpoint is what would, what would happen to a client if the company went bankrupt or if the company went under and they had to liquidate. And so we look at the, you know, the likelihood. We try to minimize those problems by looking at characteristics or companies that have characteristics that minimize the loss of income or loss of principal and, and a so, senior so what would secured be, what would position be, would. What would be, say, two examples of BDCs you would like now? Well, Franklin Square is a fairly new one. They're a very large one. Uh, that's a, a, a very good one. They have a high percentage of investments in, um, in senior secures. And then Fifth Street Capital is another very large one. They're one of the largest in the industry, um, and, and that one is uh, an investment-grade one as well. So very solid, good track record. Dividends on those are, are, are very solid and, um, and continue to be strong. Another area you like is preferred stocks. Uh, so preferred means that in the case of liquidation, preferred shareholders get paid before common shareholders. What would be right. some examples of preferreds you would like today? Well, preferreds, you know, a lot of times you'll find them in financial services or real estate. So I, I like um, real estate investment trust preferred shares. Um, again, dividends 4 to 7%. Digital Realty Trust is a strong player in that space. They have several issues of preferred stocks. Public storage is one that um, uh, they do a lot. They raise capital quite a bit using preferred shares. So most people are familiar with uh, with the company Public Storage. So they're a solid company, and and candidly, they've had some some good positions. Another one would be Pitney Bowes. People are are familiar with. How about anything else outside the REIT area in addition to Pitney Bowes? Uh, let's see. Um, off the top of my head, well, there's a wellness uh, company that would be. Um, Let's see, SCE Trust, well, that's, again, that's, a, that's a, a security that is a bank trust, so um, many times banks would do the same thing. So you have Texas Capital is a, is a, comp, is a bank down in, obviously, in Texas that has a, a pretty nice dividend. I think they're about 6.5%. Good. Another area you'd like to talk about is annuities. Uh, now, it seems that the fixed annuities today are at a pretty low rate, 3% or thereabouts, but are there some ways to buy annuities do you think make sense today? Yeah, there are. And, and annuities, we like to use annuities. You know, I mentioned earlier, Jordan, that we like to do a lot of income planning for our clients. We kind of ladder the income. In other words, we go from the bottom up. And what I mean by that is we like to be able to secure uh, basic needs with client with guarantees. <clears throat> and so, so Social Security is one of those things. So Social Security is basically an annuity. It's guaranteed income. You can never outlive it. The, the next layer that we, we use on top of that is going to be 
fixed annuities. And fixed annuities right now, we typically like to use some fixed uh, indexed annuities, which some people refer to them as hybrid annuities or something like that. But they have income riders that are very inexpensive. So while you're in a deferral period, the, uh, the rider itself will grow at a guaranteed rate. And when you draw the income out, then it gives you a guaranteed payout. So if we take that payout and we ladder it, layer it on top of Social Security, then we have a real nice base in many cases uh, to start a client out on. We can use other things like preferreds and BDCs and individual bonds and some of the other things we talked about earlier to uh, add hedging layers or layers to hedge against inflation. So it gives us some flexibility when you start to layer, but the annuities provide us a nice base that the client can kind of wipe their brow and not worry about income loss. They cannot worry about principal loss when you're, again, it all has to do with the strength of the the issuing insurance company. So we look at high-grade insurance companies when we're evaluating. What are are some of the insurance companies you tend to use with annuities? Well, we've uh, Great American is a fantastic one. They're an A-rated company. American Equity is a, a strong A-rated company. Um, those are, are two of the bigger ones. National, what, National Western Life is another big one. All three of those are American companies. They're, uh, they're solid. They've got great track records. And they have decent products that are customer-friendly. Um, but it does take, you know, it does take an understanding of how to weave it into the overall income plan in order to make sure that it's going to work right. Because if you don't know how to read it, if you don't know how they're actually going to work, uh, it can come back to bite you in the butt. And that's something that we try to avoid as often as possible. Uh, before we close, I just want to talk about the topic of uh, required minimum distributions or RMDs, as you say. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What kind of mistakes do people make in? in hitting age 70 and a half and always having, having to distribute money and not really understanding how the system works? Yeah, that's a great question. I see a couple of things. One of the mistakes that, um, that I see people doing, number one, is just kind of burying their head in the sand and not taking a required minimum distribution, thinking it's not going to be that big of a deal. The reality is that the IRS can fine you up to 50% in fact, that's what the rule is, 50% of the RMD. So if you have a $10,000 RMD, $5,000 right out of the box is going to be a penalty, and then you have to pay income tax on the 10000 So it can be a very expensive mistake. The other thing that, that is um, uh, a mistake that I see people doing is not allocating um, their investments properly, still looking towards growth in the market or, or investing like a, an accumulating investor trying to grow assets in a, a, in a stock market, crossing your fingers and toes and hoping the market's going to go up um, and using that as an income base for RMDs. The problem is in the last 14 years, we've seen stock market drops of 50% or more two times. History tells us we're likely to see at least one more major correction. If you're drawing RMDs out of uh, an account that's in the market, you're going to have a big surprise if the market drops by 30, 40, or 50 percent. That's a big mistake. Most of the time when when we're dealing with RMDs, we like to see uh, investments positioned in income-generating assets where the interest and dividends are the primary source for RMDs. And that's a little bit of a safer uh, bet, and it helps people to, to feel more comfortable about their assets. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Michael Easton.
He's the president of the Fellowship Financial Group. His website is fellowshipia.com, and you can find out more about his money management services. You've given a lot of very good information about how to earn income and RMDs. So thank you very much for being on the show, Michael. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, and we'll be back in the next half hour with another guest. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is David McIlvaney. He's the CEO of the McIlvaney Financial Group. Welcome back to the show, David. Great to be back with you. Uh, for people who haven't heard about you before, just give people a brief background of uh, what you've done and, and the firm that you're uh, uh, CEO of. Sure. Uh, well, we're part of a multi-generational family business that has focused on commodities trading and brokerage uh, as well as asset management. So going back to 1972, about 40, 40 plus years, uh, those have been our focus. Um, physical precious metals as one venue, and then, as I mentioned, the asset management piece as well. Um, I work with a local group here in, in Durango to uh, administer uh, foundation assets for um, one of the Colorado State Universities, and um, those are just a few things that keep us busy. So let's kind of take a look at the overall economic situation here. You've got uh, the U.S. dollar has been soaring against the yen and the euro. Uh, you've got interest rates have been falling. Uh, gold and precious metals and commodities and oil in general have been falling. Uh, you've got all these international geopolitical events between Russia and Ukraine and ISIS and now uh, potential riots in China. What do you make of all this as to how this is going to affect the investment environment going forward? Given the number of unknown variables in the marketplace, it's remarkable confidence that is in the marketplace today. And, and I would have to say 
that it's not so much a question of apathy as it is um, blind faith in the Fed, the G- Bank of Japan, and the ECB, European Central Bank, their ability to sort of levitate not only asset prices but solve problems that, frankly, are outside the scope of most central bankers and monetary policy. But that is the disposition of, of most investors today. Uh, worse is better. That has been the case. Uh, every bit of bad news that we get sends markets higher, knowing that central banks will step up the pace of money printing and accommodation through low rates and other, and other means. Uh, and good news is treated the same way. So it's, it, we have a unidirectional market in, in, in large part, if you're talking about equities. Uh, the dollar collapse or the dollar rise and the collapse in the yen and the euro, relatively speaking, has, has everything to do uh, with, with, again, this strange structure within the currency markets. We're not dealing with absolute strength in the U.S. dollar. We're dealing with relative strength, which is really just reflecting the other weaknesses, uh, weaker spots in, in the global economy. So is the U.S. dollar really that strong? No, it's actually not that strong. Um, it's strong relative to other currencies, which are abysmally weak. So what would change that confidence? You say we're kind of levitating on this uh, bed of confidence. Do you see that confidence in the central banks uh, weakening to some extent? Well, right now, I think there is, again, confidence in what the Fed says that it can deliver. I'd like to get to the end of October and watch and see. I think they will get to the last $15 billion in terms of asset purchases for quantitative easing three, their round of asset purchases for mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And once they solve that problem, I'd like to get a month or two down the road and see if their language is still very supportive of an increase in interest rates moving forward. I think there's some realities that they can speak to, but they can't actually pull the trigger on. For instance, they've talked about raising the Fed funds rate um, to above 1%, and then ultimately by 2017, above 3%. But the reality is that creates a, a financial nightmare for the United States. We can probably handle half, maybe even one full percentage point increase. Beyond that, when you look at the interest on the national debt, that line item just last year swelled from 9% of total tax revenues to over 15% of total tax revenues. And I guess, I guess what I'm saying is there's not that much latitude in terms of that line item expanding to, say, 20 or 25% of total tax, federal tax revenues. So the Fed may talk tough about raising rates, but there are market realities which dictate, given the total scale of U.S. debt that we have today, um, dictate and ultimately limit their ability to do what they say. And that's where I think the real difference is. The market is assuming they have all the flexibility and latitude to deliver exactly what they say. And I would argue it is language only and is a manipulation of the market mindset towards a positive outcome, but it is a manipulation of the market mindset um, with words and only words. So let's go through the scenario if uh, people start agreeing with you and uh, there is a change in confidence in the central banks around the world and they, they're not able to levitate anymore. Uh, so we, we have a dramatic rise in interest rates and stock market falling and gold goes up or what happens in that environment? I don't know that we have a dramatic rise in interest rates because they'll continue to uh, abuse the currency before they admit something publicly about our own solvency. And interest rates are, are much more of a problem. A rise in interest rates are much more of a problem for them than a weak currency. So 
I think I think the investor is stuck on the horns of a dilemma. You want to be out of the general equities market and probably diminishing an exposure to the bond market. That means increasing your cash position. But now you're handing basically your hard-earned dollars over to Janet Yellen to manage. And if any central bank president is, is, is their their past record is an indication of, of of future results by the Fed, then I think we do have um, a downward trajectory for the U.S. dollar over the next three, five, seven, ten years. And you're handing over your hard-earned savings into that picture. So what do you do? The horns of the limb. On the one hand, you want to be out of the general equities market and bond market or reducing exposures there, increasing the cash component, but you should also be hedging that cash component as effectively as you can. And I think the best hedge still remains gold. So we've talked about this like six months or so ago, and, and that time gold has fallen pretty sharply from over 1300 to now about 1200 or so. Why has that happened if there's all this concern about uh, the, the credibility of the Fed and the central banks? Why have gold gone down so much? Well, I think the, the concern in terms of the Fed's credibility is, is perhaps in my head, not the general market. The general market has full confidence that, that Yellen and Kochilakota and Plosser and all the rest will deliver exactly as they said they have or will. And I would be the skeptic in that, in that regard. So I think what you see in the, indi- in, in the gold price is really the same, same thing that you see in the fear index or, or the volatility index. Up until last week, it was dead. It, we, we got to um, almost single-digit numbers this, this summer and early fall, which is to say no one thought anything could go wrong. The volatility index is, is a measure of a ratio between puts and calls, and, and gives you some indication on, on a 90-month lead, uh, I'm sorry, on a 90-day lead as to what kind of volatility is expected in the marketplace. A very low VIX number would, would indicate that there is no anticipation of, of, of coming concern, uh, imminent concern. And that's exactly what we've had now for 6 to 12 months, again, with the exception of perhaps the last 5 to 10 days. But I would say that gold is moved in lockstep with the VIX, an indication of no real concerns. And, and as we started our conversation, it's not as if we have a perfect world. We've, we've got growing conflicts where, which are reminiscent of the Cold War in Europe. Of course, we have regional issues in, in, in the Middle East. Uh, we also have slowing global, global indicators around the world, although our economic numbers are improving slightly. The rest of the world is not following suit. So in a world where Maybe Murphy has some bearing. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. We've got a few issues, I think, to be concerned about, but the market has chosen to ignore them. So if you're buying gold today and precious metals, silver and platinum, other things, you're, you're being a contrarian, really, because it's certainly not been where the action has been for maybe at least two years or so. What would be the best way to buy precious metals? Would you do ETFs? Would you do physical gold, gold shares? What would be the way to, to play it? I, th- I think it depends on how you interpret those words to play it. If you're playing it as an insurance policy, then the physical metals are, are by far the superior choice. If you're looking at it from a growth thematic and perhaps a speculation on rising prices, then, then I think you have to look at the companies that mine the metals and choosing those that have reasonably good balance sheets, I think what you'll find is the equivalent of non-expiring call options on higher prices for gold. So on the one case, you've got a speculation. On the other, you have an insurance. Our integration of gold into a client's portfolio always begins with the insurance component, um, not as a speculation. If it takes on a speculative tone, it's with the bells and whistles, things like 
the gold miners, uh, things that you would find in, in the HUI index. Uh, so, you know, I, I think prudence would, would, would require some physical allocation, um, and then perhaps, again, on a speculative basis, the miners. But the miners have had a very rough time of it lately, not only in the stock market, but also been closing down mines and consolidating and losing money, and it's been a pretty rough time for the gold miners. Do you expect that to turn around on a fundamental basis? No, I don't, I don't expect it to turn around for some time. That's one of the reasons why I would focus on strong balance sheets. For those who are over-levered, you're going to see them continued or forced to sell assets, and they may not survive. I would guess that within 18 months, the field, if you will, is, is diminished by 20-25%. Maybe even a third of existing miners are out of business. But that's going to be predicated on gold prices hanging out right where they are today. If they drop $100, $200 lower, there are some companies that will continue to do just fine. They won't make as much money, but they'll still make money. Contrast that with, say, the South African miners, where your average cost of production is 1250 to 1500 per ounce. They're all in costs. Well, every gold ounce that they mine and send to market, they're losing money on. They can't do that very long. So you're talking about tapped credit facilities. You're talking about lining up financing. You're talking about diluting existing shareholders, things that represent sort of the last and final um, swan song, if you will, for companies, some of which have been around for over 100 years. But I, I think, again, that's where you go with a few speculative dollars and focus on solid balance sheets so that you have a non-expiring call option, not something that brings in sort of the time component uh, where, where you expect it to be you know, dead and worthless within, within months or years. What would be an example of one or two companies with strong balance sheets in the gold mining industry that you would like? Um, sure. Well, and again, I mean, I have to, I have to qualify this with, with companies that we own, don't own, uh, would consider owning under, under the right circumstances. But, you know, a, a company like Franco Nevada, it's in the right territories geographically. Um, it's a unique business model, um, very low to no debt, assets to spend. Um, it doesn't have the same encumbrances that your, your typical miner does. Uh, a company like that, I think, makes a lot of sense. In the silver space, Silver Wheaton shares some of the same components that, that a Franco Nevada would. Um, I don't own shares of Franco Nevada, but, it's, but it's, it, it is an intriguing play. Part of the reason that I don't own it is because it is priced fairly rich. And I think that if we should see another couple of months and maybe a couple hundred dollars decline in the gold price, um, an entry point for those kinds of companies uh, is still on the horizon, a very attractive entry point. What is the uh, stock symbol for Franklin Nevada? FNV. And is it kind of a royalty play, similar, similar to Silver Wheaton, where they own royalties, uh, uh, but they don't do physical mining themselves? It, it, is, it is similar to ro- a royalty play. Uh, so it's a play on many different gold mines, not just one. Yeah, the, the difference between Silver Wheaton is Silver Wheaton ties into a particular mine and mine project, whereas Franklin Nevada has royalties, but it's connected with larger land base as well as a producing mine. So theoretically, you, you have not only optionality on the land itself, but optionality on the production from a given mine. So there's, there's perhaps a double play with Franklin Nevada that Silver Wheaton doesn't have. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is David McIlvaney. He's the CEO of the McIlvaney Financial Group. Uh, based in Colorado. Uh, you can find out more about him at his website, which is McIlvaney.com. We'll be back after this.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is David McIlvaney, the CEO of McIlvaney Financial Group based in Colorado. Their website is McIlvaney.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. Always good to be with you. So we talked about gold. Let's talk about silver a little bit. What is the uh, Silver prices have also fallen. Uh, what is the dynamics in the silver market and how would you play that? I think for the long-term precious metals investors, silver is particularly intriguing. Not that it can't go lower in price, but our focus is not so much on the price. It's on its relative relationship ratio to gold. Right now, it's at about a 70 to 1 ratio. If for the student of history, you've tracked this relationship, or we do it at least, and, and you see volatility in the ratio. But right now, what does that mean? 70 ounces of silver have the same market value as one ounce of gold. Through time, that ratio is closer to 30 to 1, and at market extremes can go as low as 15, that is 1.5, or as high as 100. In other words, we're at the real top end of the range in terms of silver being cheap relative to gold. The way I look at it is if you want to own gold, I would suggest buying silver at these prices because it is essentially like buying gold at $600 an ounce. Because, again, what I would do is at a 30-to-1 ratio, 35-to-1 ratio, I would be swapping my silver for gold ounces. And, again, using that ratio to your benefit, arbitraging between the two metals, gives you the ability to increase your ounces 
or, in essence, buy the metal that you prefer, we prefer gold, at the equivalent of a cheaper price. So, Why is silver dropped represent- so much? Is it a supply-demand? So they're, they're finding more? I thought there was a relative shortage of finding new silver. But why is it a drop so much relative to gold? It's a, it's a micro-market. I mean, it, it's essentially, when you, when you look at the precious metals, gold versus silver, gold has a different audience than silver does. And it tends to behave like a small or micro-cap in the commodity space. It takes very little money into the space to drive it bananas. It takes very little money coming out of the space to cause it to drop through the floor. So to see it as, as a two or three times the volatility as you have with gold is, is pretty normal. So here gold's taken off a third, and it's taken off close to 50%, 60%. So since it's so cheap, what would be your best way to play silver? Would you do the ETFs, or would you do the mining companies, or a royalty company like Silver Wheaton? How would you play it? I, you know, I own virtually everything in, 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 in that you just mentioned. We own the ETFs. We, we, we own Silver Wheaton. We own physical silver. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's bags of the old dimes, quarters, and 50-cent pieces, which today you can buy at about a 3% premium over just the raw spot price, that is dirt cheap. And, and you know, 3% premium, including commission, is ridiculously cheap. When, when you look at 100-ounce silver bars, you're going to pay a little bit more per ounce, um, but those are really inexpensive ways to own it. I would own it in an IRA. Then you don't have to worry about storing it, um, but you can own the physical metal itself inside an IRA. Our company was the first company in the country to utilize the changed tax rules in the mid-'80s, allowing for physical precious metals to go into IRAs. We've done it longer and done it for more people than any other comp- company in the country. And so, you know, not having to deal with 70 times the weight, 70 times the hassle, 70 times the space, utilizing the IRA resources to do that, I think, is a great way to position in physical silver. But I, I'm not particularly biased. I think the ETFs work. Um, they work, but I think they have a few fleas, not, as, not so many that I, wouldn't, uh, that, that I would avoid them completely, but they're not exactly the same thing as, as, as metals um, sitting there collecting dust. And, the and how about... Uh, platinum has actually done a little better, I think, with demand, uh, platinum and palladium demand from catalytic converters. What, what is your outlook for platinum? You know, with the precious metals portfolio, physical metals portfolio, we will introduce, say, 5% of a total metals portfolio into the, the palladium and platinum group. And then it just depends on the ratio between the two, which of those metals we favor, platinum or palladium. Um, we, we are not too inclined to add to palladium or platinum positions, uh, in part because we have concerns about a slowing global economy. And you, know, you look at the difference between the platinum group metals and physical gold and silver, and you're, it's, it's a contrast in values. On the one hand, you have monetary equivalents, your, your gold and silver, which have been part of, of, of every country's historical monetary standard, platinum and palladium, Although they are quote-unquote precious metals, their primary uses are industrial. And so as you see growth in the global economy, you should see increased demand for those products. And as you see a decline in global growth, you should see a decline in demand for those products. Those are the, the, the problems, the extra problems with platinum and palladium. What effect should the, uh, the various sanctions being put on Russia uh, cause to the uh, metals market since they're a big producer of uh, palladium and platinum and gold, I think? Yeah, primarily palladium and platinum. I mean, when you look at South Africa 
and in, in, in Russia, you're, you've captured most of your platinum and palladium production globally. Um, gold, Russia is a producer, but certainly not the largest producer. Um, it's much lower down in the ranks. So the significant supply disruptions can come from um, can come from Russia, and we, we saw that a few years ago when, when platinum or palladium rather spiked to over 1,100, uh, and it was basically because exports were shut down for a short period of time from Russia. And so, yes, that that is something to be aware of. Um, where we go from here, it, it really depends on our State Department's attitude and willingness to create what could be World War III. Um, you know, it was if you go back to the age of Zbigniew Brzezinski, the national security advisor under Jimmy Carter, um, he said when he was leaving office that you wouldn't have a problem with the Soviet Union in the future as long as they remained within their geographical boundaries. And that's what we're seeing right now is a press, press back to the old Soviet boundaries, uh, taking Georgia in 2008, looking into Ukraine and, and trying to organize uh, an allegiance, if you will, for a Russian-led Eurasian U Union um, to run alongside the European Union. The these are things that, again, if, if, if Brzezinski was right, they portend greater conflict in the United States and Europe um, could very well find themselves in, in more than a war of words. So do, if that were to happen, say Russia got more aggressive again in Ukraine and went to kind of connect Crimea with Russia along the southern border there, uh, what would the, how would the financial markets react to that? Financial markets negative. Um, platinum, I would want to own a few ounces of physical platinum, and uh, you know your producers would probably get crushed because it does really matter how much product they're moving to market. And so, you know, this is, this is one of the differences between owning the metal itself and, and, and owning a producer of the metal. Um, the producer is selling widgets, and they have to deal with throughput. And the more product they deliver the market, the better, in theory. And with the physical metal itself, you can have a complete stop in supply and, and a radical price increase. And so, yeah, I, platinum is probably intriguing to me from that standpoint, uh, and, 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 you know, again, you're playing an X factor in terms of world politics, so that would be more of a speculation, um, but, but, you know, with a small percentage for portfolio that might be appropriate. The other trouble stop lately in the world has been China, and there's been these protests in Hong Kong, kind of an Arab Spring, uh, going to Hong Kong and wanting more democracy there. How do you think that might play out, and how might that affect the financial markets as well? Well, you know, it's interesting. China has always treated, mainland China has always treated Hong Kong a little bit differently, almost like a tax-free zone or, or a business zone where there was a different set of rules. And, and I think what you may find is, is that Chinese leadership in the mainland will remind those in Hong Kong that although it's different, it's not that different. And, and, and it may be just a difference in name only, because what you really have is a, is a form of authoritarian capitalism, and although Hong Kong has operated with greater autonomy and the appearance of greater capitalism, it still is under the rule and, and, and thumb of Beijing. And so if, if you want to see protest movements begin there, Beijing will stamp them out in a heartbeat. You, you have to understand that each year there's close to 70,000 social disruptions all throughout China, and you don't hear about them. Why? 
because Chinese, Chinese people are very quickly silenced by the government. It's very easy with a population their size for the government to lose control. And, and, and they cannot afford to lose control. They cannot afford to have anyone else on the mainland think that if you just use your smartphone, if you're using your Twitter account or Facebook or what have you, social media, or if you want to go to street protests, that somehow this is going to change them to a more democratically oriented culture. It, won't, it simply no. won't happen. The not happen. will Very not good. let it happen. Very good. All right, well, it's a dramatic world going on up there, and I've given us some very good investment advice. My guest uh, during this half hour has been David McIlvaney. He's the CEO of the McIlvaney Financial Group based in Colorado. His website is McIlvaney.com. Thanks so much for some very interesting comments, David. Good to be with you again. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answers Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.